Just love that last song that we sang of seeking the Lord and being in his house. Would you guys join me now as we seek the Lord through prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with hearts filled with thanksgiving. Without you, Jesus, we would be stuck in our sinful ways without any hope of redemption. Because of your loving kindness toward us, we not only have hope of eternity with you, but we get to experience covenant, commu- covenant commitment together as a church to- body to- today. Truly, Lord Jesus, your name is worthy to be praised from the beginning of time until the end of ages. It is so humbling, Lord, to realize that you are the creator of everything and could have chosen anything in your creation to bring you joy. It feels as though we should not even be able to speak your name, yet you desire to hear the praises of your people. Even though we are sinful and constantly need to be reminded of your amazing faithfulness to us, you still take joy in hearing the praises of your name from your people. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the ways that our tongues, our choices, and our lives do not convey to the world around us how much we love and rely on you. May we be a people that take to heart the psalmist in his declaration that we will bless the Lord at all times and your praises shall continually be in our mouths. We pray for all of the churches worldwide that are meeting this morning in your name, Jesus, that the true gospel would be proclaimed. We pray for Henson Baptist and Pastor Michael Lawrence as he prepares to teach your word to the brothers and sisters there. May your word penetrate deep into their hearts of your people and cause them a desire to pursue you more deeply today. In all things, Jesus, we pray that your name be glorified. There are so many churches or quote-unquote religious entities with so many lost and misguided people meeting today. We ask that the lie the enemy is spreading through any of these uh, churches would be revealed by the truth of your gospel. May you draw people away from darkness and into the light today. I thank you, Jesus, for the time that my brother Hans has put into studying for the sermon today. May he fade into the background and the truth of your word take center stage today as we dive into the beautiful message of your gospel that was true as true for King David when he wrote it so many centuries ago as it is for your current church today. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat and open up to, we're going to be in Psalm 39 first, Psalm 39, and then we'll go back to Psalm 34. What is the point of this life? What is behind my suffering? Why, Lord, am I going through this? These and many other questions just like them seek to investigate the meaning and the purpose of life. All of humanity at one time or another will pursue this line of questioning. Some people proceed for a few moments in that thought. Others spend their whole lives attempting to answer it. This last week, I was reminded of how often this comes up. A couple of days ago, I interacted with a young man that was literally at death's door from his choices in life. And he was admittedly looking into the darkness of oblivion, wondering if his life had a point. Whether we know it or not, people all around us are like this young man, struggling right now with the question, what matters? What is the meaning 
of all of this toil and pain. Maybe you have even had these thoughts. Maybe even this week you've had them. When I was in graduate school, we spent the first semester learning about theories of counseling, and one of the theories is called existential counseling or existentialism. It's a branch of philosophy, but also psychological theory dealing with the meaning of life, why we exist, why we exist, existentialism. The guest speaker who came in to talk to us about the theory shared a letter from a man who was grappling with the futility of life. This man pictured himself waking up every morning, going to the end of a field, picking up a very large and heavy rock, slowly spending the day carrying it to the other end of the long field before putting it down, only to do the same thing again the next day. The speaker used this picture to speak to us about how many view life, a futile cycle of suffering and pain with no purpose. And if this is the view, it's understandable why so many people feel so lost in the midst of their lives. The predominant cultural view that is presented is just as bleak in the end. It might be fun in the moment, but its ending is the same. Life, this idea suggests, is about amusing yourself to distract from the pain. The very word amusement comes from an old French word that means to stare stupidly. Its root means without meditation, without thought. If only I can amuse myself to forget, we say. Its goal is to medicate through the suffering. Its only purpose is entertainment and amusement itself, avoidance and escape. For many who are self-proclaimed Christians, this futility of life doesn't seem to change. The so-called Christian and the Christian life seems monotonous and repetitive. At first, there is this honeymoon period where there's the endorphin rush. Finally, I might belong. Finally, I might have purpose and meaning. But then over time, it becomes, for some, just as monotonous and repetitive. Sin still plays a part, and perfection seems unattainable. And for many, the response then becomes, why even try? They, like the man in that letter, put down the rock and give up. Most likely because they don't actually understand Christ. Others are driven by a chance to succeed, get kids to a good college, retire with money in the bank, be successful, go on lots of great vacations, make memories. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things, they leave many feeling underwhelmed and disappointed by life in the end. And so we kick against the goads of all those who have gone before us and think, I will outsmart the realities of life, I will outsmart the monotony of life, and I will come out on top. And so we strive our entire life to do so. But friends, I've been at enough deathbeds, and I'm getting older myself, that you start to understand that you're either humbled in the midst of life or you become more deluded. But the end of life brings that reality to bear, and you understand the same questions that I'm presenting to you now. So what is the purpose of life then? Is it to, as our uh, neighbors who do have good food and good drink, is it as they say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Is that what it's all about? Is it to pursue the pleasure principles that Freud defined? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's to shun the enjoyment of this life in spiritual stoicism, for then you will feel as though you've conquered What is the meaning and purpose of this life? Well, our psalms today point us in the direction of the true meaning and purpose of life. We're going to do a little bit different, uh, something a little bit different this morning than we've done throughout the first book of the psalms. We're going to look at the later psalm first and then go back to the earlier psalm. 
And taking a look at Psalm 39 first, we're going to get a glimpse of the pain and futility felt by David as a kind of representative of the pain and suffering of all mankind. He captures well the seeming futility of our short lives, but then what will happen is we will see David rejoicing in Psalm 34 in the true purposes of life as he states some of the most well-known lines from that psalm. And the very strong juxtaposition between the two psalms will give us something to meditate upon and apply as we consider the meaning and purpose of life. The meaning and purpose of life. And once we're done, you can forward this on to all the people that ask you, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Now, what I believe we will find is that when we grasp our purpose, all of life becomes more joy-filled. All of life becomes more fulfilling, and it also becomes more peaceful, especially in the midst of affliction. We'll hopefully see at the end of today what the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with. What is the chief end of man, it asks? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Would you repeat that after me? Man's chief end end is to glorify God God and enjoy him forever. forever. David, the psalmist, will help us delve into this same truth this morning. And so let's begin with the latter psalm and read together from Psalm 39, just the first six verses to begin. Would you join with me there? Verse 1 of Psalm 39. I said, go ahead and say it with me. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. What we first observe here this morning is the fleeting nature of this earthly life the fleeting nature of this earthly life. To read this psalm, to really read it and let it wash over you, is to immerse yourself in the crashing waves of pain and misery that David is feeling at this point in his life. We do not have a great degree of certainty of when this was written or what he was going through, but we can know for sure that he was in a great degree of pain. In verse 2, we see that he was in distress. He says it right there. His heart burned, it says, like a fire. Friends, have you ever had a moment like this where your emotions were so overwhelming that you intended to hold them? You intended to hold them in, to shove them down, but they ended up bubbling up and could not be stopped because the emotion is so heavy. It seems here as though David is undergoing some level of suffering or pain that is making him contemplate the futility and pain of this short life. One part of this is that, as we've seen many other times in the Psalms, it seems that his enemies are triumphing over him. The wicked are prospering, and so David is having trouble understanding the point of all that he has gone through. And so he attempts to remain quiet 
But his frustration and maybe even his bitterness inside grew until it bubbles up. It says, I held my peace to no avail. And so he blurted out his sadness at the futility of life in verses four through six. But notice that David is coming off as uh, is not coming off as blaming God for the pain he is going through. To read the rest of the psalm is to realize that he is not accusing God of wickedness as if he is unjust and unfair. Rather, his perspective overall is that he is a man who needs discipline and a rebuke for his sin. Would you jump ahead and look with me at verse 11, it says there? It says, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. David might have begun in frustration, but as soon as he cries out to God, his heart is humbled. Remember that when we cry out to God, in a sense, we're coming before his throne and we're kneeling at his feet. And when we cast our eyes upon him, all of a sudden, our emotions go away and we recognize the awesomeness of his power. Friends, this alone will humble us. And this is what David is doing here. His heart is humbled to realize that he has no footing to rebuke God for the matters of his life. In fact, he is the one that needs to be adjusted so that he fully grasps that it is God alone in whom his hope lies. He quickly realizes that without God, he is but a vapor. His life, verse 4, he says, is fleeting. It moves quickly, and then it's gone. Verse 5, it's a mere handbreadth. And his years are as nothing. This is not a prideful man bringing God to account. It is a man in deep despondency, realizing his neediness, his weakness, his fragility, and the brevity of his time on this earth. Like the author of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, life is but a vapor, it's all vanity. He encapsulates and describes the state of man without God's help so well. Look again at verse 5 and 6. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. When you're dealing with an eternal God, that is true. Thousands of years go by like that. Billions of years are but a breath in the eyes of an eternal God. And so he says, surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. There is an intention here, it seems, to contrast man with God, to whom David is crying out. While God is eternal, man is but a mere breath. While God is the source of light and life, man is simply a shadow. The Hebrew here behind this word shadow is the same word that's found in Genesis 1 when God speaks and says, let us make man in our image. It's that word image. In the Hebrew, it's tselem. Our tselem. Man goes about as a tselem. But the context rightly interprets it here in its semantic range as shadow. You see, without God's light reflecting off and through us as small idols that represent him, as small image bearers that represent him, we are nothing but a shadow of what we could be. We're like a phantom. Sure, there might be resemblance to the image of God we were intended to reflect. We have that base in us, it says. But an idol without the breath of life from its creator to animate it is nothing compared to what we were created to be. 
It is likened to a deaf, dumb, lifeless, helpless idol worshipped by the pagans surrounding Israel that needs them to carry it around because it's powerless. In the same sense, man is the same thing. If we don't connect the fact that what we are created for is to reflect the source of light, we are not a source of light in and of ourselves. David sees the same futility of life as the man who wrote the letter I mentioned in the introduction. But that is where the similarities end, for David does not continue to spiral down the endless loop of feeling sorry for himself as if in existential defeat. He begins to make a turn right here in verse 7, the seed of which is found in the fact that he's crying out to God to be the one to adjust his mindset and his heart. That's what he's asking for. But before we get there, let's consider a few practical applications that we can take away from David here. The first is that we can observe and hopefully apply is that David's desire to remain silent amidst others when his emotions are heightened is something that we should take for ourselves. Proverbs 29.11 says this, it says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. This is one among many Proverbs that say the exact same thing. David knows that the best thing to do with this kind of emotion, first, before anything else, is to take it to the Lord. He held back in front of others to bring it before the Lord because he recognizes that the way he's thinking is not reality and not right. This is powerful, friends. He should be the first place to go when we're not sure what to do with our emotions. In our secular therapeutic age, we have suggested that every emotion is valid, every emotion is true, and every emotion must be expressed at the top of its lungs for us to be our genuine selves. But that is, according to the proverb, foolishness. It is unwise. Think of parenting, for example. For those of you who took the parenting class from me, it's true that we need to help our kids by emotion coaching, but the first place we should direct them is to the truth of the reality, the truth of the word of Scripture, before we validate any emotion. We use Scripture as the filter to help them figure out their emotions. Yes, we coach them, but we don't coach them to make them lords of themselves. We coach them to bring them under the lordship of Christ. Only then, after walking emotions through Scripture, should we then take a look at it and say, what is truth? Now, why is this wise? Because our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all else. Amen? And they will lie to us and operate as an avenue for Satan to get a handhold in our lives and our relationships. G.H. Wilson, in his commentary on Psalms, says this powerful truth within this idea. He says, when I truly listen to my pain and the anger it generates, I often discover that it, is, that it is greater than the circumstances justify or it's misdirected. If the circumstance seems to merit an anger level that is lower than what I am feeling, then I know there is something at work other than the circumstance I am acknowledging. Too often, he says, the difference is the result of old wounds submerged and never dealt with, a sense of personal sin or guilt I am unwilling to admit, or fear of rejection or vulnerability. These hidden factors elevate my anger as a way of masking myself and pushing others, including God, away from intimate relationships in which resolution can occur. 
His point is very valid. Because our heart is deceitfully wicked and Satan yearns to manipulate it to his use, we often think we are justified in our emotions and we cry out to God, this is truth, this is the genuine self. And we don't allow God to give us the actual truth in order to help us understand what is actually going on. Because in most cases, what is the reality? That I need to be humbled. That I need to take myself before the Lord and let him be Lord over my emotions. Not usurp his throne by calling my emotions Lord. So why, brothers and sisters, should we go to God first when we have overwhelming depression at the brevity of life or overwhelming anger at the injustice we see and feel? Because we can ask God to reveal to us truth, to mold our hearts into what he desires and to help us to act in a way that will glorify him and not simply justify our own pride and selfishness. David presents a helpful example here, if nothing else, in taking his emotions to God. But then... In addition to that, in verse 7, we begin to see what he does with these emotions as he issues a plea for deliverance from agony. A plea for deliverance from agony. Would you read me, with me verses 7 through 13? Starting in verse 7 of Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. As David turns to God, he finds that the brevity of life is true, but it is God who has decided to make it so. God is the one who has set this limitation. And so there is meaning behind it. Psalm 90 verse 10 says this, The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. It's similarly clear that it is God who has enforced this brevity for his own purposes. Have you guys noticed all of the uh, articles about these tech geniuses that are spending millions each month in order to maintain their youth? Have you seen that in the news at all? It's laughable. Maybe you might get a few more years of toil and trouble. But that's about it, right? There is a limitation. Let's say we gain 100 years. It's still but a breath in the eyes of God. And so God, in setting this limitation, is choosing to accomplish his will throughout our brief lives. And because of that, the meaning and purpose of life cannot be found in anything other than the one who sets the purpose. And so David says, now, O Yahweh, for what do I wait? What am I waiting for in this life? Ah, oh, my hope is in you. David understands in verses 10 and verse 13 that it is God who has allowed the affliction that he is undergoing. 
But this does not mean that God is a bad or vengeful God. No, in fact, it means that he is just and sovereign. And so it is to Yahweh as judge that David turns in order to request that he might experience Yahweh as Savior. It's one and the same God. He is not duplicitous. He is not two-faced. He is perfect and holy and whole, perfectly just as judge and perfectly merciful as Savior. Recognize that this is not a forlorn hope that he's saying, as if to say, I guess I'll finally try God since nothing else is working. No, this is a true and optimistic hope, even under the worst of circumstances. David is here seeing a slight glimmer of light by turning to the Lord, and one that will be magnified when we look at Psalm 34. So we first see him call for God as Savior, deliver me from all my transgressions. Notice where he's putting the responsibility for the brokenness. Do not make me the scorn of a fool, Lord. David knows and understands that All of the brokenness we experience is due to the sin that has been brought into the world through mankind and then amplified by our own sinful actions. And then we see him turn to God and appeal to him as righteous judge in verses 9 through 11. He recognizes the humility that's needed to approach the judge and then cries out in mercy, declaring that God's judgment is more than he can handle, which is true for all of us. We are too weak. For verse 11, when God disciplines a man for his sin, it is all-consuming. And this brings him back to the realization that sin has cut our lives short and the judgment of God is more than he can handle. How awesome, powerful, righteous, and strong is the eternal God and how weak and empty and purposeless is man when we attempt to exist apart from his will. Now, you've heard me say before that there is no such thing as an official sinner's prayer in the Bible as many in evangelicalism would suggest by their use of it, but one of the closest things to a sinner's prayer is here in verse 12. Look at it again. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. David is appealing to God that he would hear from him in spite of the rebellion that he admitted in verse 8. And he's begging for God to bring peace in response to the tears that are coming forth as he cries out to him. But it is what he says next that is so impactful. Don't move past it too quickly. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. The word for sojourner here is not a resident, obviously. We, We know this. It is a guest who is relying upon the hospitality of the host. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You go in your own house, and maybe you're one of those people that has the shoes off rule, right? Uh, That's fine. You go in there, but guess what? Every once in a while, you're tired, so what do you do? You break your own rule. You walk on your carpet with your shoes. Or maybe you're one of those people that you just, you put your feet up on furniture. But then you go to somebody else's house, You don't do those things, do you? No, you go, ah, this is somebody else's abode. I need to respect their rules. And so you have a humility about you. And this is what he's talking about here. This is so important for us if we want to understand the true definition and meaning of the grace that God has given us in this life. Why? Because all of us in this room, part of our rebellion against God is that we treat this life, everything we own, everything we are, as if it is our coffee table upon which we have the right to put our feet. We don't view it at all as the host who has welcomed us mercifully into his creation. 
There are a number of words that speak to this idea of a foreign national coming amongst the people of Israel. Some of the words indicate a need to be weary of them, not because of any innate lack of value in them, but because they most likely worshipped a foreign god, and Israel should be weary of them and the laws of that god by which they most likely lived. You can see this in Proverbs when it talks about the quote-unquote foreign woman. It's not talking about a different ethnicity. It's talking about a different god worshiper. But the word for sojourner here, and then repeated, is guest, a resident alien, one who has taken on the same covenant oaths of those covenantally, or excuse me, those ethnically born into the people. It is a convert, one who now desires to worship Yahweh and serve his law. But there's still something different about this person. Even though they're welcomed into the covenant, even though they're protected by the covenant, even though they're living within the law of the covenant, there's something different. And this is why you see at the temple that they could not go beyond a certain point. They couldn't get quite as intimate as those who were truly ethnically Jewish. They could not enter the full worship of Yahweh. And this was to remind them of their status as sojourners, to give them a humility amongst the people who had welcomed them in. Now, in our society that holds equality so highly, we might look at this and think, oh, that's unfair, that's wrong. But we must realize that Israel itself had this in place because they were supposed to be reminding themselves of this truth as well. They were living in the presence of Yahweh, not because they had earned their citizenship, not because they had justified the right of ownership, but because he had graciously offered it to them. We get a glimpse of this in what he requires of them in their law. This is from Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. He says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now this residency that they had acquired in the land of Canaan was not as owed landowners, but as guests who had been given a place to respond to the grace of their host. It was because of this background that when Israel began to act entitled, put their feet up on the coffee table, so to speak, and even then become bitter towards their host, that God rightfully gave them over to exile and they were removed from his abode. It was as if to say, uh, Israel, I think you've forgotten yourself here. You do not deserve, nor are you owed, residence among my favor and blessing in the land of milk and honey. In fact, you could never earn it. You are my guests, residents and citizens by grace alone, not by works of the law. For the sinner that acknowledges his need of a savior, this is to be our mindset as well. Nothing we have, nothing we are, not even the bodies we exist in, not the lives we lead or the place we call home or the first world blessings that we have, none of it is rightfully ours. It is given to us graciously by our faithful and loving host. Our lives are then simply a response to this great grace. Do we understand this? And do we live our lives as such? Adam acknowledges this was the state of all of his fathers. I wonder if we need to come to the Lord with the same humility and realize that we have acted in pride if we have even forgotten for a moment that our life is but being a guest among the Lord. 
Friend, if you are here today and you recognize that this is describing the brevity of life that you feel and know, and you have realized that you have acted as a prideful, entitled recipient of God's gifts, and today is the day you can turn to the Lord and pray the same prayer here as David. Lord, change my heart. Help me to know how fleeting life is and how small I am. Save me from my pride and help me remember that I am but a guest in your universe so that I might live a life that gives you glory for your grace. Friend, if that's you, if that's what you're feeling today, if you want to do that, any of the pastors, any of the elders would love to pray that with you today and walk you through what that means in becoming a disciple of Jesus. So please come talk to us after the service. For those of us here in this room that are his, we must recognize that this is the very mentality which we are to live as sojourners just passing through. If we can grasp this truth, then the next line is not as severe as it seems. Look again at verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. In the level of grief and pain that David is experiencing, this kind of prayer is understandable. It is begging for mercy from the one who might be able to alleviate the pain. It is reminiscent of Job in Job 10, as he says this in Job 10, 20 through 21. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. But friends, as we know from reading Job, there's far more going on than we, in our humanity, can even understand. There is a level of spiritual warfare and divine will that we cannot grasp. And so, rather than believe God is a harsh and capricious God, we can instead go to him and know that he will answer the earlier prayer of David to be our deliverer amidst heartache and pain and struggle and affliction. And this is where we turn to Psalm 34, where we will see this evidenced quite well as we see an invitation to magnify the Lord for his deliverance. An invitation to magnify the Lord for his deliverance. The background to this psalm is the incident in 1 Samuel 21, specifically verses 10 through 15. There in 1 Samuel 21, David fled from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. His best friend Jonathan had just given him the bad news that he should probably run for his life, and so he does. And at this point in his life, David is starving and fearful, so he stops at a place known as Nob and receives help from Ahimelech, the, pri the, the priest, and he eats the showbread in the tabernacle and is given the sword of Goliath that he retrieved. Now, one can only imagine the irony for David at this point in his life. The last time he saw that sword was a day of victory and praise. Now he's running in shame and fear for his life. This is probably the lowest point in David's life up until this point. Rather than flee to the Lord, though, at this point in the story, he operates in his own wisdom, and he flees to Gath, a city in the Philistine kingdom, the kingdom of the very giant that he had destroyed. In so doing, he copied the sinful activity of multiple other biblical characters who flee to the kingdom of the enemy for solace and safety rather than seeking the Lord. He arrives there carrying the sword of their slain champion and realizes this was probably not a bright move. <laughs> they might exact revenge, especially since I'm carrying the sword. And so he devises a plan to act the madman. He starts to slobber all over his beard 
He starts to claw at the city gate as if mad. And Achish, the king of Gath, says, no thanks, we're already full up on crazy people, you go away. So David escapes and ends up in the cave of Adullam in En Gedi, where some commentators believe that he authored this psalm. It is a beautiful place if you ever get a chance to go. My wife and I have stood in that cave, and it is amazing. Now there, David sits looking back on his situation and the possibility of death from two different people, Saul and Achish. And David writes the words that we're about to read. The lowest point of his life, one can only imagine the depths of sadness and brokenness in his heart. A similar emotion, most likely, to what we just saw as the background to Psalm 39. And yet, this is what he writes at this point in his life. Let's read together verses 1 through 7 in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is the word of the Lord. I love David so much, don't you? He goes through the ups and downs in life that I see as a pastor and I see in my own life. And we can look to it and see that we don't have to stay in the place of Psalm 39. That adjustment of heart can start to take place and we can move into this place of Psalm 34. Rather than survive under his own power of cunning, David here in the cave of Adullam most likely realizes that he is in the hand of the Lord and it is only the Lord who will bring life or bring death. And so he declares that his response will be to praise and bless the Lord. And look at how the experience has humbled him. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Rather than boasting in his own achievement over, Gath, uh, over Goliath with the sword or his craftiness that got him out of trouble, there at Gath, he knows that he can only boast in the Lord. And notice what his praise then becomes. It becomes an invitation to magnify the Lord for his deliverance. For when we experience the grace and mercy of God, when we understand what we deserve and yet experience that grace, there is nothing that our redeemed and restored hearts would rather do than magnify God's glory and invite others to do the same. Brothers and sisters, this is what we were created to do. This is what the selem, the image bearer, is to do. Act as a reflective magnification of the glory of God. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. By our response to God's goodness and grace and loving invitation, we're to show the world around us. And even the spiritual realm that is watching the glory of God. This is what we're created to do. Our sitting under the mystery of the word, ministry of the word, excuse me, is not about us becoming more knowledgeable. It's about God being glorified in our lives as our lives are molded to his word. Our singing is not so we can be emotionally charged up as if we were just listening to the radio. 
It is so we are encouraged by our mutual fulfillment of purpose in life to worship God together. Our giving financially is not so that we can become wealthy. In fact, it'll do the opposite to you. I don't know if you know this, but money out of your bank account means you're poorer. It's not for getting wealthy. It's so we can declare with our time, our talents, and treasures that we know that we live and serve at the pleasure of our gracious host and king. Amen? Because David knows this, he sought the Lord in his distress. Not because the Lord was missing or hiding, but more so because of the natural inclination of our heart to wander from him into our own lordship and strength. And so David turns from that and seeks God, and God delivers him. But notice it's not out of the physical situation. What does he deliver him out of? His emotions. Do you notice that? He delivers him from the brokenness of his own heart. It says, he delivered me from all my fears. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. What does God deliver us from? Well, definitely that. Yes, sin, death, hell, Satan, all of that. But he delivers us from the lordship of our own false, broken fears. And the result that David recalls to mind here is an image of Moses. Remember, Moses would spend time with the Lord and then come out to the people and his face would shine so brightly that he needed to have a veil over his face. Does anybody else just want to see like a meme of that? Right? Like, what did that look like? And David knows this was not just Moses, but all who looked to Yahweh and who were given an audience with him. Those who look to him, verse 5, are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. He hears the cries of his people. Imagine this, folks. The God of the universe, the eternal God, gives us audience. He gives us his attention when we cry to him. And this is what David did. He cried out as a poor man to a wealthy benefactor and delivered him, saved him from all his troubles. But wait a second, is this, is this true? He saved him, verse 6, out of all of his troubles. If what the commentators say is true, he was sitting in a cave here, running from his pursuers, wondering how his life got turned from the rightful anointed one, victorious in battle, to the defeated shame-filled one who just acted the fool amidst his prior enemies. Does this sound like the high point of life? So how is it that God has delivered him? Well, the deliverance here is not found in the physical circumstances, but in the fact that David turned to the Lord. The Lord drew him. The Lord heard him and brought him close so that he might have strength and confidence amidst the affliction. And David rightly sees this as deliverance. There is not even one iota of prosperity gospel in how David sees salvation. And so now, remember, his boast is no longer in himself, but in the Lord. That's how he knows he's been delivered. David has been given a new perspective where the world might look and see nothing but defeat and affliction. But David now lived in the fruit of patience, knowing that regardless of what he saw in the moment, because his life is so transitory, so quick and but a breath, he knows that he can trust God to bring about God's will and promises. And this is the image that he paints in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. We can be reminded here of the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings 6. 
You guys recall that story? Elisha and his servants are surrounded by a vast army from Syria. And the servant is really confused. And he's looking over at Elisha going, why aren't you freaking out? We're surrounded. We're going to be killed. And Elisha calmly prays a simple prayer in 2 Kings 6.17. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. What a beautiful prayer. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and beheld the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. At that moment, the servant realized not everything is as it seems. The core of reality is not the affliction in front of us. It's everything that God is doing. There are things occurring on a spiritual level that we do not see. And the truth of every affliction is that God will bring his will to pass. And that will can be trusted. And David knows this same thing. So even in the midst of possibly the worst circumstances of his life up to that point, he knows that God will be faithful to him for God's purposes. And so as with magnifying the Lord in worship, David now invites again, but this time he invites others to join him in an invitation to experience the faithfulness of the Lord. An invitation to experience the faithfulness of the Lord. Let's read together verses 8 through 22. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants." None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Throughout this section, we see what has become very common for us in the first book of the Psalms. Just as in Psalm 1, uh, that Psalm 1 set out to do, David contrasts the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And it is in this contrast that we begin to see the meaning and purpose of life. I referenced Ecclesiastes as we looked at the last Psalm. In Ecclesiastes, the author sounds very similar to David's discussion. In Psalm 39, that life is but a breath, a vapor. All is vanity, vanity. So what is the conclusion, then, of the author of Ecclesiastes? If life is vanity, what is the point? Well, he outlines two. And the first is to enjoy the world and the short life that God has given to man. This is what Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25 says. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Can you imagine if you went with me, 
Many of you can't because maybe you've not been there, but if you went with me to Burkina Faso, where the average caloric intake per day is about 250 calories, and you walked into a house, and the host prepared a meal for you and some drinks for you, and you said, no thanks, I'm, I'm fasting today. Can you imagine what that would do to them? How often do we do that by taking a stoic, Gnostic view of life? Lord, I know that you've given me this life to enjoy, but I'm, I'm really more spiritual than that. This is what he's talking about. The food, the drink, it was given by God so that you can enjoy. So the first thing is to enjoy in this world is the short life that God has given to man. The second thing is the foundation that he even speaks to here. Because we can only truly enjoy the gift of this life if we do so in the context of this host idea of fearing and submitting to God as king and more so as host. This is also from Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, David is capturing a similar two-pronged understanding here in our psalm. Psalm 39, if life is vanity, what's it all about? Psalm 34, worship God, glorify God, fear him, enjoy him, and enjoy the gifts he's given. Notice the language that he's using in verses 8 through 10. It is sensory language. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is our good provider, and he wants to provide us with good. Friends, this is not prosperity gospel language, where he will make us wealthier and more successful than everyone else. Verse 10 is clear. He will provide for those who fear him so that they lack no good thing. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, he will provide so you won't lack. So often we ask for things beyond mere necessity because we think we're owed. But the Lord is a good host who provides for our needs. One of the many reasons I was greatly attracted to learning about the Protestant reformers is that they were surrounded by two resurgences on either side of Gnosticism at the time. One form was a self-denial of the good things God had provided in an effort to show oneself as holy, swearing off good food, good drink, and sexual enjoyment within marriage was the way of many Catholics of the day to emulate the desert fathers and ascetics. On the other side were hedonists engaging in every manner of gluttony and drunkenness and debauchery. So the reformers, wanting to stick to the word, declared both as equally evil. And they brought to light the fact that all things are to be received with thanksgiving from the one who is our benevolent provider and our good host. Enjoyment of life's physical blessings is actually worship when we do so within the confines of God's wisdom, will, and in giving him thanks. Good food, good drink, enjoyment of life, enjoyment of nature, sexual relations within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. These are things to be rejoiced in, to then give God thanks. David doesn't use the language of the ascetic or the hedonist here, but like the author of Ecclesiastes, he uses language steeped in the wisdom of Scripture 
to similarly taste and see that the Lord is good. He is our good creator, our good provider. Seek his will, and he will provide for your necessities in a way that will bring joy in your life. It's in obedience to the wisdom and will of the Lord that one will find the most joy and peace in their life and will truly taste and see that the Lord is good. But this only happens if we do so in the context of recognizing him as the provider. Notice that this idea in verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This was most likely right after the Lord provided physical, tangible food for David. Where did he do so? In the tabernacle, in the place where God is to be met. A physical need was met, and a spiritual need was the foundation. This only happens if we do so in the context of recognizing him as the provider. And this is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. Take a look at verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He outlines the simplicity of fearing the Lord. And this language is reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount. It focuses on our words that proceed from our hearts. It focuses on pursuing God's wisdom and relying not on our own cunning and wisdom, but on God's view of good, which will bring peace. All of this is wise and healthy reciprocation of thankful living in response to God's wonderful provision. God created us to enjoy the creation he has built and to do so in wonderful relationship with him, responding with thanksgiving to him for what he has provided. But the truth of the matter is that we no longer live in the Garden of Eden. Sin has been unleashed in the world and in our hearts. And so again, David is not preaching a prosperity view where the purpose, goal, and meaning of life is solely to experience the material blessings. If you confuse what I said earlier with that, I want to clarify. That is not the sole purpose of life. No, he is preaching that it is only in recognizing the provider of the provision, the host of the provision, that we can truly experience the joy of what we have been given. And this is what he says in the rest of the section, verses 15 through 22. David says that life will not always be serene and easy. While we must pursue peace, life may not always be peaceful, for we live in a broken world. But even then, notice that we can pursue the same end goal, meaning, and purpose of life, whether we are at peace or in the midst of affliction. In that vein, even the many afflictions of the righteous serve a wonderful purpose for us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because in those situations, friends, they cause us to be reminded of our need for the Lord. And this is such a blessing. On those weeks where I am so busy with my own tasks that I find little time to be with my family, I am reminded as the week gets heavier and weightier how much I miss my family and love them and am overjoyed to be in their presence in my life. The sadness of being away from them and carrying the weight of the week serves to turn me back to them to realize how much I need them in my life and that life is only full of meaning if I am enjoying it with them. How much more so then, dear friends? And to what far greater degree is it to realize our need for the Lord and what a blessing that is? It's in the many afflictions that we will undergo that we're reminded of how good God is. He is the Lord who hears the cries 
for help and brings to bear all the forces of heaven to remind us of his deliverance. He is the Lord that is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed by the heaviness of the world. He is the redeemer and the one who grants refuge. But Hans, you might ask, how can I trust the Lord in those afflictions when he doesn't save me immediately or provide redemption in the way that I want? How can I trust that he is indeed going to provide the good thing that I need? Well, friends, I find it providentially amazing that nestled into this section is verse 20. He says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. In this small little verse, we're reminded of all we need to know to taste and see that the Lord is good. For we're reminded of the one who underwent the greatest affliction in order to bring us peace. We're reminded of Jesus. When Jesus was dying on the cross, it was the Sabbath, and so they needed to take down the bodies. And so the Roman soldiers went and broke the leg bones of the thieves on either side of Christ. But when they did not do so for Christ, it was odd. And so John the Gospel author writes this in John 19.36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. In doing so, he was putting an exclamation mark on a biblical theme that began with the Passover lamb of Exodus, whose blood was used to mark those whose homes were under the protection and care of Yahweh. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Passover lamb that marks those who claim him as Lord and King as belonging to him. And he protects us from death. Because of his death in our place and victorious resurrection on our behalf to establish his kingdom and welcome us into it, we can know that the next two verses are true. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so when we doubt that the Lord is good because our vision is too narrow and short-sighted in the affliction of the moment, God doesn't condemn us. He knows that we're but dust. Instead, as our benevolent host, he welcomes us into his kingdom. He welcomes us and invites us to fulfill our chief end, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, especially in affliction to seek out his help in time of trouble and know that he is there with us and has given us an eternal victory. Without the Lord, the affliction we face will slay us. But with the Lord, even amidst trial and affliction, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. We will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Friends, this is the meaning and purpose of our lives, whether in peace or affliction. Lives that are a temporary breath in this body, but lives that will span into eternity in Christ. And so the New Testament writers remind us of all this truth put forward by David. And they remind us to see it through the fulfillment of the cross and what it has made clear to the followers of the Lord. That the gospel of Jesus Christ proves that God is good. And so we can go to him at any time and be reminded of the truth surrounding whatever we're going through. Let's finish by looking at one of those sections in the New Testament now. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter, and we'll finish up there. 1 Peter 2, what we read a bit ago. Here, the Apostle Peter pulls together these ideas that we've been looking at this morning. 
And I do not think it is too far of a leap to believe that he was contemplating Psalm 34 when he wrote this. And possibly even Psalm 39. First Peter 2, notice the wording. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Notice verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is your purpose and meaning in life, friends? There it is. And notice that it's not just individual, it's corporate. It's collective. That we together are being built up to be the place in which the world glorifies God and enjoys him forever. He continues on to speak about the sacrifice of Christ and says that those who don't understand who the Savior is, they will stumble and disobey. Then verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what do we do? How do we respond? What is our application for today? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, as you leave today, I want you to have this picture in your mind that you are leaving these doors and you are walking into the home of your gracious host. And whether you're in your own house, in your own car, in the things that you own, you're still a sojourner in his home, a guest. And I want you to see how that affects the way that you live life and whether or not it helps you achieve your chief end. What is the chief end of man? What is the meaning and purpose of your life? to recognize that you are weary travelers who have been invited into, into the benevolent love and the people of the Lord and to respond by glorifying God with everything you are and everything you have. And you will find then that eternity be, begins today where you will glorify God and enjoy him forever, for all eternity. Let's make our lives, let's make our church all about that meaning and that purpose. Amen? We do so by beginning with communion. Because in communion, we are brought to the table of the king and given great grace to be able to eat with the very one who we rebelled against. He becomes our host, and we become very thankful sojourners who are given rest from our weariness and are filled to the brim. So let's pray together as we prepare to take communion. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you have welcomed us in, that you have given us a glimpse of what eternity will be like as we sit among your presence and as Revelation symbolically represents us having a feast with you, the feast of the Lamb. And so, Lord, we now take communion as a, a chance to be able to point our minds towards that day and to look back and see what it represents in your salvation that you've given us on the cross and the resurrection. 
But then also to recognize that at this moment, you're also ascended and enthroned and you sit above your people, not as a capricious God ready to strike us down with a lightning bolt, but as a gracious host who is working through your sovereignty in the midst of our lives in this broken world to bring about your will and goodness and to bring about the fact that we can taste and see that you are good even in the hardest of situations. And so, Lord, make us a people that start with the baseline of you as our gracious host, our gracious king who has invited us in, and then let us sit at your table and enjoy the good things of this life, enjoy our fellowship together, our our proclaiming praise to you through song, our taking of good food and good drink, first and foremost represented by the symbols of communion, but then extending out into our potluck meals and the way that we care for one another and the way that we host one another. Help us to image you and show that great joy that you have in the midst of hosting us and showing us hospitality. Help us to reflect that to one another. Help us to be a church, Lord, that glorifies you and enjoys you forever. And Lord, we thank you that all of this is centered upon the work that you accomplished for us. And so we now step into communion with all this in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.